0: Rob Weller was a cheerleader with the University of of, uh, Washington. And at a football game, he thought, I really need to get the crowd fired up for our team. He had this idea, and so he got one section uh, of, of people in the stands in front of him to stand up and raise their arms up. And then he quickly moved over and got the next section to do the same thing, stand up and raise their arms, and he did that section by section by section. As they jumped to their feet, it looked by everybody else in the stadium as if if this huge ripple was sweeping through the crowd. It was such a funny thing that they just did it over and over and over again. That was back in 1981. Weller and the fans that participated that day didn't realize that they were creating one of sport's goofiest traditions, the WAVE. And now, 40 years later, in certain situations and in certain stadiums, it still goes strong. Isn't it amazing what people will do when they get in a crowd? (laughs) I thought about that for myself. Personally, I remember visiting some friends in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And as a treat, they took me to an LSU basketball game. Now, you need to understand, I don't know anybody... That's a, that at that time that I was there at LSU as a student. Um, I didn't know any of the players on the basketball team, and I've never lived in Louisiana. And yet, as the game progressed, I found myself kind of being emotionally drawn in to the game, and I began to root for the home team with enthusiasm. In fact, I got caught up in the crowd cheering and yelling and screaming for victory, so much so that when the game ended, I had completely lost my voice from yelling. Isn't it amazing what we'll do when we get in a crowd? (laughs) Crowds do that to us. It doesn't have to be at a sporting event, though. It can, and it can... The emotion of it can pull you along. You can actually be in a store and see a busy group of people huddled, I mean, gathered around a table that says discounted merchandise, and they're quickly grabbing stuff. What does it do? It draws you in to think, oh, maybe there's something important of value I need to buy, and you grab something too. Or you drive down the street and see a line of people waiting to get into a restaurant pre-COVID, <laughs> um, and you think, wow, uh, if it's, that restaurant's got that kind of a line, I need to go eat there. Or you drive by a theater, and you see a crowd of people waiting to go in, and you think, well, that movie must be good. I, I, I must probably need to go see that one, too. There is a very definite pull and sway to the crowds, and therein lies a very real danger. Following a crowd can get us hurt. Jeremy Libby and Brian Cross know this well, both of them have broken necks and for the rest of their lives will be in wheelchairs. Because they were at a rock concert and they decided that they would do what everybody else seemed to be doing and that is participate in something called crowd surfing. Where an individual is picked up by the crowd, held up by their hands and passed along But then very suddenly, they're dropped to the floor. Jeremy and Brian were dropped on their heads. So it is important to be watchful of the influence and sway of a crowd and how it can negatively influence us. But it's also important to realize that there are times when following the crowd is the right thing to do. Because at times, the crowd is correct. Grab your Bibles, open them up on your devices to John chapter 12 this morning, and we are going to look, since this is Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Now as you open to John chapter 12, we will notice that this passage is dominated by a consistent reference over and over again that it is a large crowd atmosphere. Now, in verse 12, Jesus is just about ready to enter into the the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is this special? We know that Jesus has visited and come into Jerusalem at least three other times in his life. But this is the first time that a large crowd has come out to welcome him as he's come in. All the other times, he kind of slips in and slips out. In fact, they come out to welcome him in such a way that it is almost like an enormous parade. And so it's important to understand the significance of the celebrative procession that's happening. From verse 12 down to verse 19, there are three things that are occurring in this passage that we need to take special note of. First, We can see in verse 12 and verse 13 that there is a public confirmation going on. Confirmation of what? Well, look at these details. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him crying out. Stop right there. First, who are these cheering people Who have come out to meet Jesus? Well, verse twelve tells us that they were people that were in Jerusalem for the feast. Which feast? Well, the Passover feast. So, at this time in history, if you were a spiritually committed Jew. Then if at all possible, at least once a year, you would travel from wherever you lived in the Roman Empire and you would try to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast because this was the feast of all feasts. This was the big memorial celebration of God bringing his people out of their Egyptian captivity. And that miraculous event that's recorded for us in the early books of the Old Testament forever stamped the title on the Jewish people that they were God's special ones. Now, why did the crowd come out with palm branches? Well, palm branches at that time were a symbol of victory. So if you think about it in our day, we have parades on the 4th of July. And what do we do? We we wave the American flag. Or if you've ever gone to a ticker tape parade, after a championship has been won by a sports team, the colors of the team are waved, or their uh, team logo uh, and banner is celebrated by everybody. What are we doing when we wave those things? We're cheering victory. So these people, in waving these palm branches, saw the entrance of Jesus as representing some kind of a victory. Question, why was it a victory? Well, look what they were yelling. That helps us. Look at the first part of verse 13. So they were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of Of the Lord. Those words are literally quotations of what they were yelling that comes from Psalm 118, verse 25 and verse 26. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 118 is it's considered to be a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm that's describing the coming Savior of Israel as the Messiah. What they did not yell, at least not that we're told of, was the very next verse of Psalm 118, verse 27, that says this, The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. So these people were celebrating the victory that God's Messiah has come, that Jesus is that Messiah, Jesus is that Savior that God has sent to us, His people. But the climax of what they were yelling is the very last phrase of verse 13. Look at it. So, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, look at this last phrase. Even the king of Israel. So, this crowd of people screaming at the top of their lungs were confirming Jesus is the king of Israel. Even though Herod is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Even though Pilate has been appointed uh, as the trustee over this whole region. And even though there is a Caesar in Rome who people call king. There's the public confirmation. But the passage reveals something else besides a public confirmation of who that Jesus is king. It also reveals a second thing. And that is, there is a prophetic confirmation going on here. Verse 15, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a direct quotation from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament. But it was written 400 years prior to this event. So the Spirit of God moved the prophet to write down this event hundreds of years in advance. Now, the fascinating thing is that the kings of Israel rode on mules. Jesus comes in what? On a young donkey. Donkeys were the mode of transportation for a common individual going somewhere on a business trip. In other words, Jesus as king did not arrive in some stretch limo. Rather, he came in in a beat-up Chevy with over 100,000 miles on it. Jesus as king comes in quite humbly to be identified as king. Now look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, the disciples did not think about this ahead of time. They didn't think, hey, remember what Zechariah 9.9 says about the coming of the Messiah's king into into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey? Let's make that happen and fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. No, there was no manipulation by man here. This was God's doing. And it was only later that the disciples understood the fulfillment of God's plans. So we've got a, com- a public confirmation of Jesus as king. We've got the prophetic confirmation of Jesus as king. But look, at there's a third thing. There is the personal confirmation, starting at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, meaning with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. In other words, those that just a few days earlier had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead spread the word. They couldn't keep quiet about this. They told anybody that would listen to them what Jesus had done and that he was coming into town. We understand that, that when any of us have got good news or great news, it's hard to keep it to ourselves. In fact, we don't tend to keep it to ourselves, we share it with others so we get on the phone with them or we text them or we post it on our favorite social media channel because we want to get the good news out. We want to get the good word out. And look at the response to the spreading of this word. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So some people heard the testimony being shared about Jesus, and they thought, I want to go see this guy for myself. I want to see what everyone's talking about. On the other hand, look at verse 19. The religious leaders weren't excited. They scoffed. So the Pharisees, verse 19, said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, they were not interested in whether Jesus really was the king. They were only interested in how his coming into town was going to impact their agenda. So put those three things together that we just see in the passage. There was a public confirmation, there was a prophetic confirmation, and then there was a personal conversation, and we can see now the point of the passage. This pre-Easter event makes no sense without understanding and seeing Jesus as King. In other words, Jesus arrived a week ahead of time in Jerusalem before His death. And the next seven days of His life will only seem a confusing mess of events and speeches and activity unless we understand up front that this parade acknowledges Jesus as the rightful heir on the throne of David. Jesus is Israel's king. In fact, Easter, coming in a week from now, will not make any sense whatsoever unless we clearly grasp who Jesus is. Because once we know who he is, then we can appreciate what happened during the week and what happened on the weekend and then why it had to happen this way. And we're clearly shown that it is in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is offering himself to the nation to be their king. So is all this just an interesting history lesson from 2,000 years ago? What does it mean for us? Here in the Brainerd Lakes area, How does this 2,000-year-old story impact my life or impact any of our lives here this morning? Is there any relevance to a solitary man riding in on a donkey while while a crowd of people scream their approval of him? Well, let me suggest we kind of look at this event again Because I think there are three very practical ways that it impacts our life this morning. Any one of our lives. First, I'd like to suggest to you that this event here asks us to make a correct identification of Jesus. Because did you notice that these people did not stream out of Jerusalem to see a philosophy? Did you notice that they didn't come and start waving palm branches for a set of rules or regulations? No, they came out to see a person. In other words, the essence of Christianity is wrapped up in an individual and his name is Jesus Christ. So the most important question to ask and also then to answer is this, who is Jesus? And if you think about all that he said, if you think about all that he did, there really only are a few options that are possible in identifying him. I mean, obviously, Jesus claimed to be God's son. Jesus declared that he is the only way to find eternal life. Jesus said that no one can come to, the, to God, the Father in heaven, except through him. Jesus did miracles. He healed people. He walked on water. He controlled the weather. He drove out demons. So who is he? Well, one option um, is that he's a conniver. In other words, he's a con artist um, who purposefully was deceiving other individuals. And if that's the case, then that means that all the, the claims that he made about being divine, he is lying to us, and that all of the miracles that he did, he somehow faked them because he's a conniver, he's a con artist that's one possibility. Or there's another option. He could be crazy. In other words, he wasn't trying to deceive other people. He was deceived himself. He was two bricks short of a full load. This guy was loony because he really thought he was God's son and he really wasn't. So, being crazy is a possibility. Or third, he really is the king. That everything he said is true. All the miracles happened and they support his claims to the things he said with his his words. That Jesus is the rightful king of Israel who came to rescue his people. And right there lies a major problem. Reducing the options of correctly identifying Jesus to three makes people really nervous. Why? Because we would like to be politically correct and not have to take a firm stand on who Jesus really is. Listen once more, and you've probably heard it before, these famous words from C.S. Lewis He says this I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing about Jesus that he was a great moral teacher, but not God. That is the one thing we can't say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who thinks that they're a poached egg, or else he's the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Palm Sunday, in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, asks us to make the correct identification. Who is this Jesus to you? But it does something more. It does a second thing. This event and all that, that, that occurred here challenges us to make a faith connection. A faith connection. Look at verse 15 one more time. Quoting from Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Jesus came to be our king. Jesus doesn't want us to acclaim him as king for somebody else. He wants us to exercise faith And accept him as my personal king. See, Jesus didn't live on this earth, teach us powerful truth, suffer on the cross, and then experience a horrible death through through crucifixion, only to assume the position of making suggestions for our lives. Jesus Christ came to be Lord. And kings have authority. That's why at one point in his life, Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So to say that Jesus is my Savior and Lord means that I'm trusting him to give me eternal life, and then I in turn, I have given him complete control over my life. I will do what he says. It is possible for a person to correctly know who Jesus is but never make the choice to connect to him by faith. In other words, they've they've never made the move from identifying he is the king to the next step over, he is my king. So Palm Sunday asks us to make that call. Not only to make a correct identification, but also to make a personal faith connection with Him. But the passage gives us a third thing to consider that's very relevant to us. And that is these events encourage us to active communication. I find it fascinating as I, as I look over the story. Those who had contact with Jesus could not keep quiet about their encounter with Him. And it's not just here at at the Triumphal Entry. You go back and look at what the Gospels tell us about people who had a chance to speak or engage with Jesus. They were transformed by it, and they couldn't keep their mouths shut. In fact, in the years to come after Jesus' death and resurrection, this created a real problem. For as the followers of Jesus Christ went out and broadly and boldly testified to how Jesus Christ changed their lives, they got into trouble. For your consideration, sometime go and look at Acts chapter 17, verse 6, where Luke writes and says, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't it interesting? The followers of Jesus Christ were called troublemakers because they were turning the Roman world upside down because of their testimony of how Jesus Christ had changed their life. (laughs) But again, we understand that. It is unnatural for us to keep good news to ourselves. We want others to share our joy because of what we have experienced. So those who knew who Jesus is and have trusted Him to be their Savior and Lord, these are the kind of people who go out, and as verse 17 says, they bore witness. They spread the word. Which means there is a direct connection between having a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and having a testimony of good news to share with others. There's a connection there. The more transforming of an engagement you've had with Jesus, the more you cannot keep that kind of good news to yourself. You've got to share it with others. But just like in this story, recognize that we're going to get mixed receptions, mixed responses. So, just like in verse 18, after hearing what Jesus has done for us, There will be others that will hear that and think, I need to find out about this Jesus guy for myself. They will want to hear what he has said. They're going to want to examine what he has done for themselves. But others, verse 19, they will reject it. They won't care to know more. They will see Jesus as a threat to their life. They will see Jesus as a threat to their carefully made plans, their careful agendas that they're trying to pursue, and they will consider the crowd of Jesus' followers to be a bunch of stupid animals. And yet, as long as we are loving and gracious in spreading the word, then the response of others is not our responsibility. We're simply to be faithful and letting others know the good thing that we have found in Jesus. (laughs) If you had been in Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday, what would you have done if you had heard that Jesus was coming into town? If you had gone out there to see him, would you have been swayed by the crowd? Kind of depends on answering the question, who is Jesus to you? Have you made that personal faith connection with him? Some of you need to do that this morning. And if you have made that personal faith connection with him, are you involved in active communication, telling others about the good news you found in this generation? Why don't we pray about that together? Join me in prayer, please. Father, Palm Sunday can make us really nervous when we realize that it's asking us to answer, who is Jesus to me? It's a good question. But it's the kind of question that makes our hands go clammy. May even begin to sweat a bit or breathe more deeply or more rapidly. Because we see the threat level there. He's a threat to my agenda. He's a threat to my plans of where I want to go and what I want to do. Can I ask you a question? How's that that going? And this morning, are you willing to recognize that it's not going all that well? Well, It's painful, it's out of control. And your heart yearns for what your heart was made for. And that is to invite a king in. Some of you need to do that this morning, right here, right now, to cry out to heaven. And say, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my king. Because I need a savior. Just as he rode into Jerusalem, I want him to ride into my heart this morning and I want to give him my life. My friend, if that is your prayer this morning, that is a prayer that will always get a response from heaven. But some here this morning have known the Lord for years, but recently you've been stiff-arming him and his authority in your life, and you know the issue, and you need to come and lay it at his feet. And once again, Surrender to once once again come and yield and say, Jesus, you are rightfully my king, and I abandon myself to you. Father, these are the moments where choices like this are so transforming. And here on this Palm Sunday, like those that were there, that first one, we want to shout the victory. We want to honor you as the rightful king, not just for Israel, but for our own lives. And thank you that as our king, you are loving and gracious and kind and powerful, and you can do anything. So, Father, we ask that you would answer our prayers this morning. Father, that you would come and be in that rightful spot in our lives as our Savior, our Lord, our most gracious King. Father, we thank you for coming in the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.